They need to be allowed to process this because they're going to process this much later. They are going to process this as young adults, as adolescents, college age, 20s, 30s. They're going to constantly be processing this and going through a wave of emotions because as someone whose father murdered his mother and was consistently, consistently processing those emotions, it is a roller coaster because there is no playbook for this shit. There is no manual that you can download on your iPhone to figure out how you're supposed to deal with these situations. Whether you are the adult in their life trying to be there for them or whether you are the child who has lost everything, who is trying to process it because they don't even realize what they've lost until. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? Happy Friday, everyone. It has been a week, but I have a great episode for you guys. My guest today, her name is Gabrielle Fedora. She is the founder of the nonprofit organization, True Crime Replay. And she is going to talk to us about her inspiring story to create her organization and move through her trauma. Speaking of trauma, there is a case that I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And unfortunately, it has all come to a head this week. That is the missing persons case of Anna Walsh from her home in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Now I became aware of this case because I was reached out to by a friend who said, there's a lot of similarities in her case and in her disappearance with that of your mother's. And um, they were right. <laughs> and as I delved more into it, I was, it was just very eerie. And she has three sons, uh, two, four and six. And what happened this week is a couple of days ago, her husband who had been arrested or taken back into custody because her husband who was awaiting sentencing in a previous case for fraudulently selling Andy Warhol paintings, he was then issued an indictment for her murder. Police have been looking for her body for a while. They did not find anything, but there was a lot of DNA evidence that had been uncovered. There was a bloody knife that was found apparently in the couple's basement of their home that they were renting in Cohasset, Massachusetts. And there were also bloodstains that were found as well in the basement and apparently also retrieved from a distribution center for trash in the area where police recovered a bloody rug or carpet and a hacksaw apparently. Forensic investigators looked into his search history online and they found uh, multiple searches for how to dismember a body, disposing of a body. Now, I've been interviewed about this over the past couple of days, and I probably will continue to be interviewed about it. But I was on a podcast called Surviving the Survivor. The interviewer, Joel Waldman, he asked me something that many people have asked me. He said, what would you say 
to the children? What advice would you have to the children? And here's the thing. These kids are two, four, and six. I don't really have any advice for them right now. They're too young. My relationship with my mother was very good and it was it lasted for almost 12 years and until her murder. And the thing for me is that I have those wonderful memories. And I talked about a process of doing this podcast and also making my film A Murder in Mansfield, which brought other relatives into my life that I had never known because I was abandoned by both sides of my family. I was in the foster care system and eventually was adopted, but I don't know a lot about my mother or my father. And I can't trust my father to ask him these things because he's incarcerated for her murder. He's also a psychopath and a, and a narcissist and a, and a world-class pathological liar. So nothing that he could tell me I can really believe in the first place. So one of the things that has really been unique about doing this program and about creating content is these relatives that are second cousins or cousins once removed or twice removed, whatever the, the, the genealogy is there. But a lot of them have said to me when they've watched these videos on YouTube or they've listened to my podcast or they've seen my film, they said, you are a spitting image of your mother. And that's amazing to hear. These boys' lives right now they're in the custody of the state. The father has been arrested for this murder. They're never going to get to know that family. So what I would say is to the people surrounding them, that they need to support them. They need to listen to them. They need to let them grieve. And this isn't, the thing about trauma that's really interesting and the thing that I discuss in this program is that this is an ongoing process. This might not affect them until they're in their 20s or 30s. It probably will affect them sooner, but... It might not really hit them until they're older. For me, I was constantly processing it and my involvement in my father's arrest, my involvement in his prosecution, my involvement in trying to connect with him over the years and my involvement in holding him accountable for what he did was all a way of catharsis for me and then creating the film, creating this podcast. But also for me, in a lot of ways, I still was coping with all of these things. And I feel that's what these boys are going to do. So to whoever takes them in and tries to give them some sort of sense of normalcy, it's not possible in a lot of ways because they're not going to have their mother. They're not going to have their father. And really, these are three boys. Boys are very close to their mother. They're not going to have that. They're going to have very faint memories, unfortunately. There's a couple of things that come with that. Is One is that they will be able to find out these beautiful memories of their mother eventually. But they also need to be allowed to grieve. They need to be allowed to process this because they're going to process this much later. They are going to process this as young adults, as adolescents, college age, 20s, 30s. They're going to constantly be processing this and going through a wave of emotions because as someone whose father murdered his mother and was consistently, consistently processing those emotions, it is a roller coaster because you grieve for that loved one you lost, but you also grieve for the fact that your father did this. And then you grieve for the fact that you never got to know your father. And your whole family dynamic is, well, it's <laughs> allowing the children to go through that naturally. You know, we have a really big tendency of like, suck it up, move on, just be strong. No, you've got to process it. It's the only healthy way to do this or else that leads to negative situations occurring in your life. You don't process the emotions. You don't process the grief. You don't mourn. You don't process the trauma. And therefore, 
one of the, the the key things with trauma when they talk about this in epigenetics and uh especially with holocaust survivors is that trauma is passed down through generations and this would be no different where these kids are experiencing this trauma they're gonna have to be allowed the space to process that so for whoever comes into their life in their support system, they're going to have to understand that. They're going to have to make space and create space for that. And they're going to have to let them know that that's okay. Because there is no playbook for this shit. There is no manual that you can download on your iPhone to figure out how you're supposed to deal with these situations. Whether you are the adult in their life trying to be there for them or whether you are the child who has lost everything, who is trying to process it because... They don't even realize what they've lost until, I mean, for me, when I think about it, and I was very fortunate to be adopted when I was 13 by a loving family, a, a very large family, actually, with all the brothers and sisters that my parents have. And, and that was incredible because I didn't have a large family. I came from a very small family. You have to process all of these things that you're not going to get to know about your family. And I often, and I talk about this a lot on this program I had before, where I wonder like what my mother would be like at this age with me right now. If things were different <laughs> is what I wonder about a lot. If my father hadn't committed this crime because he had no reason to do so. If my mother had been allowed to live, had been allowed to be my mother, had been there to see me graduate high school and go into college and have a career as a filmmaker and et cetera, et cetera. I wonder about that a lot. And these kids are going to do the same thing because they, they got robbed of that opportunity by their father and also for both their parents. So they don't get to know him as well. They have to process that. They have to grieve for that. And I'm going to get into this a lot more in the episodes, in the next couple of episodes, because this is a big case. And I don't normally comment on these things, but I am very intrigued about this. And I'm very supportive of this because I just, it hits so close to home. I know what it's like. So anyways, as I said, my guest today is Gabrielle Fedora. She is the founder of the nonprofit organization, True Crime Replay. And she started this organization to process her own trauma that she experienced as a survivor of domestic and sexual abuse as a child. She ran away and now she is working with people with missing persons cases and to bring light to these cases. So I'm pleased to welcome to the program, Gabrielle Fedora. So Gabby, thank you so much for joining the program. I'm happy to be here and I'm glad that these conversations have started happening. Yeah. So I met you full disclosure. I met you on Twitter spaces I yeah. like a week and a half ago. Yeah. It was that beginning of that discussion about Anna Walsh. I know that you got brought in because you had been looking into her on your own and had heard that yeah. this discussion was happening. Yeah. What happened is. I had a friend reach out to me who actually testified at my father's murder trial for the murder of my mother. And she was the one who pulled the dental records to identify my mother's body. And she reached out to me and she goes, have you seen this? Because it's really eerily familiar. And for my audience, just to let you know, you have a little baby on your lap and her name is Natalie. Yes. Oh, yeah. So I became really interested in not only, so my friend Shelly reaches out to me, she tells me about this and I just started diving into it. I was like, oh my God. And I looked at the now suspect who's been arraigned on murder charges, her husband. And I thought, God, he just has those same dead eyes as my father had. 
And just the eerie similarities. Look, she disappeared on New Year's on New Year's Day, actually, at four in the morning. Got was going to the airport in a ride share thing because I guess she commutes back and forth from Washington D.C. And that was his story, which was eerily familiar to my father's. Yeah. Which was literally my mother got into a waiting car. He was hypothesizing that she went to Washington D.C. Later on, after the trial and after he was convicted, his brother. My uncle, my godfather, who was best friends with my mother, came out and said, oh, I saw her in Washington, D.C., which mm. is just very odd. But it just it's all these really eerie parallels. Right. And I started thinking like, oh, my God. And then I delve in. She's got the three kids, which, of course, two, four and six. They're just little babies that are literally. I don't know, but I mean, I know they all know that their mom's not there, but the six year old, obviously. I was 11 and turned 12 when all of this happened. I can't imagine what's going through there. Like, how do how are people even explaining this to them? And that's so my heart just goes out to them because it's just like, what do you? And today, listening to the the charges being read to him in court, seeing his sort of again dead eyed reaction to it, it just made me think of my father, and it made me think of they don't. I don't think. And this is something I was very passionate about. People don't understand or look at the consequences of violence. Like now this has impacted his family, his children. It's forever changed the course of their lives. If he is in fact guilty of doing this and if she is in fact dead and it's horrible. I think what really sticks out to this case and why we had gotten on spaces that day was everyone's repulsion by... That was the morning that he was taken into custody and he walked past or he was walking into the jail and he was smiling and acting like there was nothing wrong. And people were so repulsed by that initial reaction that you're here under these charges and you're smiling for the paparazzi and the news as you're walking into court. That was really... yeah, but what was interesting is that he wasn't, he was there for being, for misleading officers. And the reason why is I think it's, it has nothing to do with her. Yeah. It had to do with the fact that he's supposed to report his whereabouts because he's already getting ready to be sent to the clink for defrauding people over selling a phony Andy Warhol. So he's already up to be sentenced to go to prison for fraud. So he's supposed to report his whereabouts. He didn't have an ankle monitor. Like, how do you report your whereabouts when you leave the house? He did. He had a radius of areas that he was allowed to go. So this, when this played out, he had said he gotten lost on the way to his mother's house. Oh, that's. And that was what the kicker was, is because that's where they discovered the dumpster, which led them to the. The transfer station and that's what led to the finding of the various tools that he had used and then it just kind allegedly, of allegedly 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 well yeah with dna that they're saying supposedly had been used to commit a crime yeah so that's where that that's- all came from but I know that you guys have been really active on this Idaho 4 case too. And I think that's the thing that as a true crime survivor in a lot of ways, like my father was a little bit different because I witnessed my father. I heard it happen. So for me to make judgment on him, like, yeah, you murdered my mother. 
Like, I know he did. Which was so fascinating to me after the fact is just years of gaslighting me that my feelings weren't valid or that I didn't hear what I heard or insinuating that I was coached in that trial, which is just utterly fanciful. I thought to myself, wow. So I could firmly say that, yeah, he did it. But we can't ever, we can't say that because there's no witnesses, right? So to me, it, it makes me feel like, oh, this is, we're so quick to judge. We're so quick, just like with Brian Koberger. And I always feel like that's dangerous because what if they're innocent? Now, I would say that this guy's already been found guilty of one crime <laughs> and it happens to be fraud and lying. So he's obviously quite capable of lying and defrauding the public. It's an interesting story. But anyway, how did you come into all of So originally when I grew up, I went through my own trauma being a child sex abuse survivor. And then during that trauma, I had run away from home several times. So I knew what it was like firsthand to be missing. So when I was an adult and really started to delve into what happened to me when I was younger, I really picked up on missing persons cases and their stories and the public's tend to be, oh, very blase. Oh, they're just a missing kid. Oh, they chose to run away. And that really stuck with me as someone who had been there and done that and what actually had led me to do that. So with that in mind, I started looking into Jennifer Dulos because I'm based out of Connecticut and that was a big case near me. And then there was the Tony Tote family that went missing that had been originally from the town I live in now. And with that having happened, it kind of started just as a Facebook thing. And then we picked up case after case and we realized there was just this need, especially for families that don't have a lot of money or don't have a lot of things, there's a great divide in resources, especially with missing teenagers, which is what led me to start the nonprofit organization so we could really start helping people bring kids back home. And then we do adults and everything else as well. But what you find out very quickly is doing missing persons, missing persons and true crime go right hand in hand, because normally these people are missing because of some crime, whether it's barter, which is the big grab on true crime, but there's so many other things as well. That's how my mother's case started. It was treated as a missing persons case, which I remember when police came and then they were asking me questions and I'm trying to say, no, she's not missing, but they, I mean, she is missing, but she's not missing. I know what happened, but treated as a missing persons case. And I interviewed a woman, her name is Nina instead. And she has a podcast called already gone. She, I believe that's what it's called. And she contacted me because she is in the Michigan area and works with, works with missing persons cases there, which is very close to Ohio, right? Michigan's our neighbor. And one of the things we discussed is how rare it is, first of all, that these missing cases, missing persons cases even get reported, even get, because it's the amount of time, right, that goes by 
I think there's a show called The First 48, right? When mm-hmm. I guess they're investigating murder suspects, for example. But it's those initial times when someone does go missing that they then, you only have a small window before, for example, they can't find her body that they believe that she's been murdered. Now there's so much time has passed, right? She was reported, and in the case of Anna Wall, she was reported missing days later after she went missing. I think it was like January 4th, I believe, or 5th by her employee and her employer. And that's three days, four days, right? That that she's gone. And so I was talking to this woman, Nina Inset, the podcast host, she was saying, not only is it that these cases don't get reported, but they don't get reported in a certain amount of time. And then it just goes on top of paperwork, on top of paperwork, on top of paperwork, right? Because so many missing cases, missing persons cases get reported, but they don't get reported initially when it happens. And then loved ones are without their loved ones for a long period of time. They're like, okay, we need to report them missing. And by that time, it's just like the trail goes cold and then they want answers and it's it's been a month. Why did you wait this long? Well, that's what law enforcement ends up saying to them. I'm just so fortunate because police, like I said, that one detective believed me because I don't know what would have happened if a week had gone by. And it's something that happens so often and it gets fought back and forth both directions. Like this whole concept of, oh, well, you need to report things faster. And then people that try and go and report and the police are like, you don't have enough evidence to say this person is missing. So it's like a double-edged sword of misconceptions on both parties. There's so many cases, even just recently, that all have to do with missing persons, like Adelina Kojikari, who's a missing child, and she wasn't reported missing for five weeks until the school stepped in. And this was like before she hadn't been seen since the day after Thanksgiving. And she was only reported missing right around Christmas. And this is a like a repetitive issue. I mean, I could go down a list of names of people, especially children, in the last couple of years where there wasn't so much oversight that have just disappeared essentially off the face of the earth and no one's been able to find them. And why do you think that is that people wait? Is it they're holding out hope? They want it to be a private matter? Is it that they feel that, yeah. Like if it's children, it has tended to be that the person that was in charge of them has done something. Serenity McKinney's case, she went missing after the Christmas of 2019 or 2020 and wasn't reported for eight months. There's a lot of these sort of issues where it's in kids' cases, normally the parent has done something which is why they didn't report in adult cases it's an issue of okay well adults classic line that families hear is adults have the right to go missing yeah so there a lot of times depending on the department that they're working with it's okay they have the right to go missing but they're missing and we're losing that valuable time Oftentimes, it's just a matter of lack of education on what to do because they're like, oh, well, 
maybe this person is just busy and they're not answering. Like they don't realize that person is missing normally until it's been a couple of days. So can we talk a little bit about what drove you to this work to start this foundation? What happened to you as a child? So when I was really young, my mom was a single working mom. My dad had been an alcoholic and had lost custody. So when she would leave me with my grandparents because she was working her butt off to try and provide a steady household for me. And then that grandparent ended up being my abuser. He did eventually go to court and was charged with sexual abuse. But by that point, it had been going on for two or three years. And then during that process, my my grandmother had caught him red-handed and had promised, oh, I'll go to the police. We'll tell your mom. Everything will be okay. It's not going to happen anymore. And then it just kept happening. So I grew up having that distrust in the system and distrust yeah. in my family because I thought they knew and just kept sending me. They did eventually find out during seventh grade. I had written it in my diary and my mom had read my diary and pulled me from school and took me to the police. And we went through the whole process. And in that process, I was a kid. I was 12 at the time. There's a lot of things that happen that they don't make you really aware of to try and protect you through the court system if you don't want to, if you don't want to be able to have to testify. What I didn't realize is by letting him plea, he got essentially no time. I think he served a total of three months in a jail and three months in a mental health institution before he was released for something that I mean, had happened for so, so long. Yeah. Oh. So. And no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. During that. Oh, yeah. So during that seventh to eighth grade time period is when I ran away several times, which is what led my mom to look into my diaries, which led to the discovery of what had been happening. But that first time I ran away, it was particularly awful because. The police, when they did find me, had to drag me out of a girl's crawl space attic. And when they were dragging me, it was because they were like, oh, we brought your favorite person. They brought my grandfather with them to retrieve me from having run away. So not only did I run away to try and escape him and I didn't get to escape he was there waiting outside and rode in the police car. So I didn't even get the opportunity to tell them why I ran away because he was there. And do you think he was there to protect himself? Obviously. Absolutely. Because he knew if they had me in that car alone and asked why I ran away and he wasn't there, I would have told. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It's one of those things where It's hard, but at the same time, I know that it's given me tools to do things in my life 
to be something bigger because it kind of puts things in perspective. I, when I found out I was having girls, I have three girls and every single time I broke down because being a girl and having gone through what I went through, the world hasn't changed that much. And I was hoping to create really a world. No, it really hasn't. So I'm just really hoping. unfortunate. It's it, the sexual assault has become something that is so, so common. And when I made my film and my film was out there, it's obviously the murder of Mansfield, it's about the murder of my mother by my father and the, and the consequences of violence. But the people that reach out to me that see the film that it resonates with the most because there's not going to be many people whose father murdered their mother right yeah i would say and i was astonished and heartbroken when i started like looking at message after message over the years the majority of these people are sexual assault survivors and sexual abuse survivors and they're 90 percent female and it's 90 mm -hmm. perpetrated on by the person who was caring for them right whether that be the uncle that was babysitting them whether that be the stepfather whether that be the mother's boyfriend or whether that be somebody who's blood related the like the grandparents or whatever or even their own father and just gives me a lot of hope in a lot of ways because the story resonates with them and therefore they see my story and they go, well, if you can make it, I can make it through this. And that gives them hope, which to me is gobsmacking in a lot of ways. Okay. I mean, I mean, I'm glad, but I'm just saddened for what they've gone through. But do you get that same thing as you begin to sort of let your story, I give you have this nonprofit as you begin to sort of share your story more and more? Yeah. I think it's one of those things where I was already hyper aware of how common it was because of all the support groups I've gone to, even being a teenager, hearing other people's stories, but then coming onto bigger platforms and really starting to see how widespread it is has been eye-opening and heartbreaking at the same time because I'm glad to see people are starting to talk about it because for so long it was just not spoken about. My extended family had that mentality of we don't talk about these things, you tarnish the family's name and really didn't allow me into the family for that reason because I wasn't willing to not talk about it and continued to let him attend events after his jail time and be around children, which was particularly heartbreaking for me to watch happen over the years up until his death just a year ago. Oh, why do you feel, what? You're, so I met you in this true crime, this true crime group on Twitter spaces. And obviously you have true crime replay, which is your Twitter handle. And what is True Crime Replay, by the way? So it was originally supposed to be a podcast. And then uh -huh. I tried doing it on my own and realized podcasting is a lot of work to do oh, alone. Oh, it's a lot of work. Oh, yes. It's the job that doesn't pay anything. <laughs> the full-time job that doesn't yeah. pay anything. 
So then I went back focusing on our network and then we started getting families reaching out to us because we covered other people's stories, third party. And then we started getting families proactively reaching out to us. And then it kind of evolved into this realizing there's this need for people that are in that trauma and in that moment, they don't know how to verbalize what they're going through. They don't know how to call resources. There's no handbook for what they're going through. So that's kind of how that progression evolved. And now that we have a podcast and discussions again, and we have all these things going on, personally, I have people that I've been letting run other stuff so I can focus more on survivor work and reform work and that sort of thing, which is a little less triggering for me. No, 100%. And it's, and I'm always, I've for years never really even realized I'm so new to the true crime space because even though I made this film, I was making a film about my story and what happened to me. I wasn't like a true crime whodunit type person. And yeah. I just sort of, kind of got into this true crime community less than a year ago because I started interviewing fellow survivors all started with Tara Newell from Dirty John and just sort of <laughs> sort of continued after that and I was astonished about a couple of things because I didn't realize how popular it was with women for sure I mean 90% of my audience must be female and I think in the true crime in general they knew this I became aware of this when I was traveling around with with a murder in Mansfield to the different film festivals. I didn't really understand it. And then I started thinking, like, why is that? I started thinking, like, why is that? Why are we obsessed with true crime? And then I started realizing, as many women have told me, they're fascinated by it, but it's also they want to be aware of it so they can recognize it and so they can be prepared. Yeah. And I think another thing you'll find really common is true crime is really popular with trauma survivors. Sure. I think there's a rush of, especially with survivors that haven't really spoken out much or might have not seen justice. There's that rush of, thank God that this person said it. something awful and someone did something and someone and like they're going to see jail time. And there's that sense of relief that there's some justice happening somewhere. And you know what? And that's what I, that's where I arrived with it after so long, because I'm, I know that so many people are fascinated with it, but yes, it's that it, it gives them hope and it gives them a sort of, because they might not be able to find that peace in their own lives. Hearing their story, your story, my story, whatever, other people's stories, and seeing something being done about it really gives them a sort of sense of satisfaction. And I have kind of twisted my brain to understand that. And I guess I, I can completely understand it as a victim and as a survivor of all of this. But I guess is, and this is goes back to numerous podcasts that I've been on, it always makes me so keenly aware of how fortunate I am that somebody listened to me. That one detective, David Massimore, saying, I believe this kid. I believe this kid. Exactly. It's like there's some people that have gotten so lucky. They, they have. 
And I hate to say lucky because it shouldn't be luck. No, it shouldn't. No, like, it, it shouldn't sh be lucky. Every single person shouldn't be believed because yes. how many times has false reporting happened versus how many times has things not been reported? Correct. Like, it, okay, so at that point, yeah, maybe we'll get a few false reports, but how many people will see justice and how many people would be taken off the streets? that have done horrible things that the system is just not necessarily very victim friendly. The, and that, and exactly. And that's the conversations that I really love having about these things is that you raise this awareness of the consequences of violence. Cause that was my passion growing up. Nobody cares because it's like the next case comes along. Okay. Now we're fascinated with this that's distracted us into something else. And it is human nature. I don't resent it at all, but I go, we don't think about these things because we're not educated about these things. We don't see what happens to victims. We don't see the destruction that occurs due to this behavior. You know, my, you go, oh yeah, your father murdered your mother. Get over it. Which is, I get a lot by the way, all the time still. That's Why are you talking about it? Why are you talking about it? And I'm like, I am over it. I'm talking about it because I'm helping other people because they resonate because people have said to me for a very long time, you don't see the people that you really help by doing your podcast, by talking about these things. Those are the people that are silent that are going, wow, that really hits me. They don't say anything like that's the people that you're really speaking to the people that don't reach out. And I'm like, well, that's a really, it's a very poignant statement and it's very powerful too, but you know, I think for me, talking about these things is obviously very cathartic, right? And sharing the story and giving other people hope that, hey, like you're going to, here's the spoiler alert. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it through. No matter what you're going through, you're going to survive and you're going to be okay. You might be bumped, bruised. You might have some broken bones. You might have some scars, but you're going to make it, you're going to survive. You're going to be okay. And I always wanted to speak to that one kid, but on the flip side, I wanted to raise that awareness because they do not understand because for example, we talk about what happened to you and obviously you're not perpetuating the cycle of abuse, but oftentimes people's coping mechanisms and correct me if I'm wrong, but will often be that they will repeat the cycle of abuse as their way of coping. It's all too common. I mean, I've worked so many cases now and some of the cases I'm working on recently have people involved in these cases where it's that. It's either people who have been traumatized that then turn to alcohol and drugs or it's people that have been traumatized and then continue that abuse and then they say oh well this is what happened to me so i'm going to do this to others and it just continues to happen generation after generation yeah. i mean even in my situation it was my grandfather but he did not i was not his only victim and it is speculated or rumored in my family that my grandmother had been witness to her own trauma or trauma in the family and her generation, which is what made it acceptable to her to look the other way. And so by 
repeating and not speaking to and continuing that cycle of abuse, it's how these traumas continue to just pile on top of each other than add in mental illness. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is, you know, the, is letting people know that they can feel empowered to speak up too. Like I spoke up, I spoke up until I was the annoying little kid who I'm sure people were tired of, but they, and I think, and granted, like my mother's friends also were not fans of my father either. But I think that, but really it was law enforcement's ear who I had to bend and just the faith that Dave Messmore had in me as a detective to go, there's some, this kid firmly believes this. (laughs) There's a reason this is an articulate young man. And I think that if you can, we should always listen to children, right? And just becomes to be able to let people know that you should speak up, say something, do something. Don't be passive about this. I mean, even with the missing person, oh, we'll handle this internally, which happens, of course, all the time, right? Oh, it'll be a family matter. We won't involve people. Then it, it, and it, it, I engage with a lot of people about these subjects and it happens a lot in communities of color too because Definitely. of obviously there is a socioeconomic factor to all of this as well. You look at this Anna Walsh case. This was not that. This is a wealthy white woman. I mean, she's Serbian, so, but you know, she's ethnic, but this is a person from a good neighborhood, a good family, or at least on the surface, right? And there was still just this reticence to do something about it. I don't know. It's, I was listening to, there were some people talking about that were friends with them and said, we don't understand why this happened. Either they were so happy. They were together, this, that, and the other. I'm thinking to myself, people were keenly aware that my father was, they were very aware that my father was a womanizer for sure, because he wasn't shy about it. He had a girlfriend that was pregnant at the time that all of this occurred. I have a half sister that was born 12 days before my father was arrested. So there is literally, he was just brazen. And I don't know about this guy, Brian Walsh. Like I said, I don't know anything really about this case. Other than what I've just briefly read and listened to, but all of the characteristics, just looking at him is just, it reminds me of my father, hundred percent. I think especially with Anna's case, the part that has kept me up at night is some of the footage that they found that have supported the case is the, it was Home Depot, I believe. Uh And she had the three boys with him in Home Depot buying the supplies. And I can't imagine to be that kid trying to grow up after that, having that being public knowledge. Oh my God. I think that's the part that kills me with her case because they already had to lose her. I didn't know that. Oh my God. They're already victims, but to then make them accomplices. And of course they're not accomplices. Let's be very clear. They are complete victims in all of this, but. I just see the conjecture that is leveled towards survivors and victims. I can't imagine the scrutiny that just the, 
These poor children. That's what makes me... There's no reason to do these things. There's no reason. Get a divorce. It's done. Over. Move on with your life. And it, it's just time after time of the same story. This and a lot of time, I we end up having a lot of people reach out that are various trauma survivors. But uh -huh. my heart hurts like how many times that there are women that are in DV that are like, they're fascinated by these cases where, you know, that it's and led to the woman's demise. But they're like, that's not going to be me. And I'm like, yeah. it very well could, please let us help you. We will do anything we can. Let's make a plan. Let's get you in touch with resources. Let's do whatever we need to do. And how many times? It's not me. That's not going to be me. It's not like that. And I'm like, it wasn't like that for her either until it was. Like, there's no stepping stone to that. It just is not that. And then it's that. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, exactly. This is National Stalking Awareness Month of January. And it's again, that, yes, that is another crime. It's National Stalking Awareness hey. Month. And that is another crime that is just something that it goes very underreported not pursued by law enforcement i think not at all i think it's not only maybe it isn't taken seriously but i think they even say come back to me when he does something well when this person does something i'll be dead that's what will happen and but also the world is flooded with these types of situations unfortunately I don't know what the answer and the is. internet the internet has made it so much easier to do that yeah. i mean it, it's so easy to like and people don't even notice that they're making it easy just by leaving their notifications on snapchat or twitter or anything like they're just giving up that information because there's that push by social media to live that lifestyle of look at me look what i'm doing which just feeds that information to anyone that might have melatonin. But also there's a flip side to this, right? And you're absolutely correct. But there's a flip side to you don't want to live in fear either. Because there's something to be said for that as well. And I think that's the other flip. Like That's the other side of the coin for me with true crime is that you people become so obsessed with it, they almost become xenophobic or agoraphobic, right? And... They don't, they don't, you have to live in society. You have to engage in the world. It's healthy to do that, but you also have to be smart. It's not the answer just to take everything away. It's, it, it's very interesting because I think about my two sisters, right? So I have a half sister was born 12 days before my father was arrested, who I don't have any contact with. I haven't for six years because it all started when I made my film, which I wanted her to be a part of. She was going to do it. Her mother intervened. She decide not to do it all of a sudden and has never yeah. spoken to me again. The other one is my adopted sister who was adopted from Taiwan six months before my mother was murdered. And I, the last time I saw her was January, 1991. We were separated. We were, her family did not want her to see me after a couple of visitations and supervised visitations, but she grew up in the same town I did. Both my sisters did. The thing that I think about is they were both sheltered in a lot of ways from what happened. Oh, we're not going to, we're not, gonna, oh, that's not you. Or that's, it's like, 
are you kidding me? Like for me, I couldn't get away from it. Of course I want to, yeah. don't want people to know who I am, but I can't avoid that. I was on try on television testifying against my father. I'm the one that led the investigators the whole time gathering evidence against him. Of course I didn't want to do that. And this is why I left my small town 20 years ago to move to Los Angeles because I wanted to do something with the story, but I also wanted to start a place where nobody knew me. I mean, I love where I come from. I love the support network and the base that I came from. I never wanted that to define me in my life. But at the, on the flip side, you do have to interact with society. Like I don't, I can't speak to anyone else's mental health other than my own, but I just, I, it, it, I don't think it's healthy to shelter a child either or to shelter people because you're afraid of what's going to happen. And I think there's a lot of helicopter parenting that goes on with trauma survivors over their children. And I feel like that is also, because of course you want the best for your children, right? And of course you don't want the bad things to happen, but I feel like also you do have to let them live. You can't, I think, I'm trying to think of a case recently, but I know that there have been many cases that people have said like why didn't you do x y why would you let your child do this or why would you like you know, even you think about a kid who's abducted in the neighborhood riding their bicycle in their neighborhood right and i'm sure the parents are the first people like why would you let your child out i don't know because the child needs to be a child or the child gets hit by a car well the kid needs to be a kid like it just happened it was horrible but it was out being a kid he was riding his bike like how am i supposed to know what even my own staff knew, like that I was a trauma survivor, but recently through starting to talk more about it and opening up and starting writing and doing outreach, there's that kind of shock moment of holy cow, like there's a disconnect with reality. And I think it's something that as more and more people I've been seeing cases come out and people are starting to talk about it. People are talking about the um, the child sex trafficking lately has been really big. The discussions happening about child sex abuse material, the CSAM that was up on social media. And as yeah. these people are talking more and more about it, I think it's kind of been a reality check for people. And I keep trying to tell them like, yes, this is happening. And people ask, is this just happening now? And I'm like, no, this has always been happening. Yeah. Just you just weren't better aware better. of it. Yeah, you just weren't aware. And I find that a lot too. And there's something, again, so I have another podcast with Tara Newell called Survivor Squad. And she was telling me when I interviewed her eight months ago, nine months ago, she was telling me, we were talking about how her mom, John Meehan stalked both her and her mother and her family and everything prior to him trying to kill her. And she was like, yeah, he was using trackers on our vehicles and he had downloaded things into our phones. And I said, what? And then she goes, yeah, you can get a tracker on Amazon for like $70 to track somebody's vehicle. I'm like, that was absolutely a shock to me. I was like, you can actually, what you can buy? I mean, wasn't a shock that you could buy it on Amazon, but it was. Because I'm like, they're actually allowed to sell those things in the United States, first of all. Second of all, it's $70 on Amazon, so you can just track people's vehicle. It's a, I mean, it's idle hands are the devil's workshop, as they say. And I think, especially in these situations where stalking is involved, 
you can get really crafty. I had a stalker. She contacted my father in prison and started a pen pal relationship with him and then sent me the letters to throw them in my face. It, it was horrifically violating for me. I mean, I remember <laughs> I, I saw it and I was in such shock and I was in the middle of a parking lot. I was getting ready to film. And I just started vomiting. I was so sickened. I, why somebody would do something like that. It was so cruel. It was so cruel. And that's nothing. That's benign compared to most people's stories. Again, yeah, and the I, world. Yeah, sorry. No, yeah. Like I especially what for with what we see, there's in the missing person community, especially a giant concern on how stalking is used with social media and how often stalkers go and put out information in TV as well, being like, oh, this is this person is missing. Oh, have you seen them? They make up a story and then they use those social media leads to find their victim. And that happens often. That's why there's a giant push to, if you're gonna share a missing person, have you called the police department? Does it have a police, does it have a case number on it? And there are steps to actually verify this is an actual missing person and this isn't DV, this isn't a stalker, this isn't a parent that is not supposed to have custody of this child. And it's used in such a nefarious way and it goes right hand in hand with stalking and how easily accessible and twisted people can be. It's just mind-boggling how often we see it happen because we will research every single time before we put up a case. Okay, it's this legit. And how many times it's not is terrifying. Well, I mean, yeah, that's heavy. Gabby, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Where can my listening audience find you? Yeah, so you can find us either at our website, which is truecrimereplay.com um, or sorry, .org. We also have book. You can look us up there for True Crime Replay, Twitter, TikTok, so any social media. We're there. All same exact tag. Yeah, exactly. And if you ever have questions for survivors or if you have a missing person that is, that you need help with, there's a form on our website or my email, which is Gabrielle at TCR. My guest today, my guest today is Gabrielle Fedora. She is the founder of the nonprofit True Crime Replay. And we've had a wonderful chat, a very serious chat, but a wonderful chat. Gabby, thank you for all you're doing for victims, for survivors, for your advocacy. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. You too, Collier. That was a really interesting conversation with Gabby. I love to hear people's journeys on why they do what they do and what makes them tick. And I, like I said, I had discovered Gabby on Twitter spaces, her Twitter handle, True Crime Replay. I thought it was very interesting. We have some mutual friends and I got into some conversations with her and I thought, I really like to talk to you on the podcast and I'm so glad I did. I love bringing light to the work that people are doing and that they're really so genuinely connected to. And again, you know, even just hearing the facts that she told me about Anna, the Anna Walsh case with even just the children being brought into the Home Depot while their father is buying the cleaning supplies to clean up what appears to be the murder of their mother. It's heartbreaking to me. 
children have experienced enough with just losing not only their mother, but their father, but now to be dragged into this as um, some sort of connection. It's unfortunate. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's not unfortunate. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. It makes me very sad for these kids. But again, the reason why, and something that Gabby really said is that when people look at true crime, I often think about it and I'm concerned about people's obsession. But as she said, people look at it so they can find hope or they can find justice because they didn't get that justice in their lives. And they see someone else getting in that and that reassures them. Or they see you moving past this trauma and that brings them hope. And that's why I do this program for those reasons. You can find out more about Gabby in the show notes of today's episode. I have some links there for you guys with her website and her social media handles. So check it out. This episode was kind of a little bit of a bummer for me today, just because I'm really, I'm saddened for these children that have to go through this. It really hits home to me. And I'm just, I don't know. I just, um, the world is still a beautiful place and I'm very hopeful for humanity, but sometimes it just gives you a swift kick in the ass, but they'll be okay. And as I say all the time, I'm living proof of that. On that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via apple Podcasts, spotify audible find us on youtube youtube.com forward slash collier landry the film a murder in mansfield is available on investigation discovery discovery plus and amazon prime video this podcast is a production of don't touch my radio innocent